break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 2nd of November, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, as we always are. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be updating you on just a execution nightmare in Oklahoma. We're going to be sharing with you how unions are, surprise, surprise, very popular here in the United States. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with air pollution, which is much worse and much more rampant than you might think, also here in the U.S. Many people have, unfortunately, heard of Cancer Alley in Louisiana, a stretch of the state where due to the huge amount of chemicals being pumped into the air and water by the state's massive petrochemical industry, cancer rates are particularly high and tend to be concentrated in majority black and mainly poor areas. Investigative news outlet ProPublica has now done a study of the whole country looking into the impact of industrial poison in the air using the EPA's own monitoring tools. And they found that the problem is very significant, in particular for fence line communities, which are those that are in the immediate area of various plants and factories. They also find, importantly, that the way the EPA monitors the risk, or maybe doesn't monitor it to be more exact, is leaving millions of people exposed to serious cancer-causing risks. In particular, the report notes many of these plants are releasing gases like benzene, an aromatic gas that can cause leukemia, and ethylene oxide, a highly toxic chemical that can lead to lymphoma and breast cancer. They note that ethylene oxide is the biggest contributor to excess industrial cancer risk from air pollutants nationwide. Despite all the danger, the EPA is not really minding the store here. It's a longer story, but more or less, when the Clean Air Act first emerged in the 1970s, not as much was known about these industrial chemicals, and since then, industry lobbying has meant that the methods of addressing it have not evolved, even though, since 1990, the EPA has been collecting a lot of data on this issue, and in fact, has even constructed a tool for the general public to examine it. The way the EPA looks at this cancer-causing air is that it, quote, strives to protect people from an excess cancer risk of one in a million. That means if a million people live in a place, and in the course of a year, one of them gets cancer due to industrial air pollutants like benzene or ethylene oxide, then the EPA wants to at least look into doing something. That being said, the EPA measures the quote-unquote acceptable risk differently. As ProPublica lays out, quote, EPA policy sets the upper limit of acceptable excess cancer risk. Acceptable excess cancer risk. Hmm. At 1 in 10,000, 100 times more than the EPA's more aspirational goal and a level of exposure that numerous experts told ProPublica is too high. According to the ProPublica analysis, quote, 74 million Americans, more than a fifth of the population, are being exposed to estimated levels of risk higher than the 1 in 1 million level. 
that 256,000 are being exposed to risk higher than the 1 in 10,000 level, and that 43,000 are being exposed to as much as triple that amount. And on top of that, the EPA measures the risk based on individual facilities. So say you're surrounded by three pollutant-spewing chemical plants. The EPA measures your risk based on one plant, not taking into account the cumulative effects. So essentially, you'd be counted three times. And if each individual plant is not cumulatively over this 1 in 10,000 level, which is the acceptable risk, they don't consider it to be a really high risk. They're looking at it individually. So you can see how they're basically undercounting the impact in certain communities that are surrounded by many of these plants. On top of all this, and this is the real kicker, the law does not require the agency to penalize polluters that alone or in combination raise the cancer risk in an area above the acceptable level. The law does not require they do anything at all, even if they measure that a plant is putting cancer risks into the air above a level considered acceptable by the EPA. So let's just summarize here. Tens of millions of people are at risk of getting cancer due to chemicals being spewed by corporate interest at levels all experts acknowledge to be very dangerous. The EPA knows about this. They, in fact, study it, but they are under no obligation to actually do anything. And on that note, so far, really aren't doing much more than making promises about addressing it in the future. As we mentioned at the outset, these risks are not arrayed equally. As ProPublica notes, quote, a quarter of the 20 hotspots with the highest levels of excess risk are in Texas. And almost all of them are in southern states known for having weaker environmental regulations. Census tracts where the majority of residents are people of color experience about 40% more cancer-causing industrial air pollution on average than tracts where the residents are mostly white. In predominantly black census tracts, the estimated cancer risk from toxic air pollution is more than double that of majority white tracts. And as ProPublica also details, quote, our findings build on decades of evidence demonstrating that pollution is segregated. People of color are exposed to far greater levels of air pollution than whites, a pattern that persists across income levels. These disparities are rooted in racist real estate practices like redlining and the designation of low-income neighborhoods and communities of color as mixed residential industrial zones. In cities like Houston, for example, all-white zoning boards targeted black neighborhoods for the siting of noxious facilities like landfills, incinerators, and garbage dumps. End quote. ProPublica also goes on in their study of this overall issue to relate how federal law on pollutants places quite a bit of power in the hands of state and local officials. And not surprisingly, the areas in the South where the situation is the worst are quite lax. As they note about Texas, quote, between 2008 and 2018, lawmakers cut funding for state pollution control programs by 35 percent while boosting the state's overall budget by 41 percent. According to a report by the Environmental Integrity Project, an advocacy group founded by former EPA staffers, a Texas Tribune story from 2017 found that during the prior year, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality had levied fines in fewer than one percent of cases in which polluters exceeded emission limits. Even when penalties are issued, many polluters see these fines as part of the cost of doing business. And for the record, by the way, ProPublica notes the top polluters on the corporate side are the Dow Chemical Company, Huntsman Corp, Eastman Chemical Company, BASF. Yeah, you know the commercials. We don't make the stuff you buy. We just make the stuff you buy better and apparently give millions of people cancer. And the final company there is Lyondell Basil Industries. The EPA, for its part, assured ProPublica they know what's going on and that they're going to do something. What exactly? They don't know. But the officials quoted in the story seemed at pains to limit the amount of promises being made, although they are at least acknowledging it's a real issue. Either way, it's clear that this is a serious problem and the quality of air in many places around the United States is very dangerous and the lack of action is having deadly 
consequences. Well, we're just a few days past Striketober, and it isn't lost on most of us that unions are seeing a rise in popularity as they start to become more active on the strike front amid stagnating wages, dangerous working conditions, and absurd hours. More Perfect Union, a labor-focused journalism project, has just released some new data on how people feel about unions. Among other things, they found that 58% of people said they view unions favorably, 54% said they would support unions at their workplace, and 53% said that they thought the current strike wave was long overdue. And additionally, they found that, quote, while majorities of Americans at every income level said they support having a union at their workplace, the strongest support came from Americans who make less than $25,000 a year. 58% of those making $25,000 or less said they would support a union at their workplace. 57% of those making between $25,000 and $50,000 a year said that they would support a union at their workplace. Among the wealthiest respondents, those making more than $150,000 per year, 52% said they would support a union at their workplace. They also found that low-income workers were more likely to support worker-led strikes at their job. 52% of Americans making less than $25,000 a year said they would support a strike at their job. 54% of those making between $25,000 and $50,000 said they would support a strike at their job. A clear majority of everyone making less than $100,000 a year agreed, additionally, that the strike wave was long overdue and benefits wages and working conditions. Just 49% of people making more than $150,000 a year agreed with that last statement. It's also worth noting here that black people of all the various groups they broke out to study on racial, gender, economic, and party lines were by far the most pro-union subset of the study. 64% of black respondents said they would support a strike at their workplace compared to 42% of whites, for example. 73% had a favorable view of unions. The only subset topping that was self-described Biden voters who had a 74% favorable view of unions. 71%, which is by far the highest, by the way, 71% of black respondents said they feel that the current strike wave was long overdue. The next closest was 66%. Overall, the trend is clear. Unions are popular, strikes are popular, and it seems that lower income and black workers are particularly ready to fight. We spoke to you last week about Oklahoma's drive to execute seven people with a potentially unconstitutional method that has been likened to a quote unquote chemical burning at the stake. We spoke to you about the fact that Oklahoma was in court to overturn a stay on the execution of John Grant last Thursday. Oklahoma did ultimately prevail and they did execute John Grant and the execution did serve to confirm the fears that executions based on the drug protocol used by Oklahoma are bound to be brutal. As the Death Penalty Information Center reports, quote, Media witness Sean Murphy of the Associated Press reported in the post-execution news conference that Grant began convulsing almost immediately after the midazolam was injected into his body. After being administered the first drug, the midazolam, he exhaled deeply. He began convulsing about two dozen times, full body convulsions, Murphy said. Then he began to vomit, which covered his face and began to run down his neck and the side of his face. After prison personnel wiped the sick off Grant's face and neck, he began to convulse again and again, vomited, Murphy said. Oklahoma City Fox Television anchor Dan Snyder corroborated Murphy's account, saying, quote, almost immediately after the drug was administered, Grant began convulsing, so much so that his entire upper back repeatedly lifted off the gurney, end quote. Amazingly, the state of Oklahoma said the execution took place, quote, without incident, and attacked the accounts of reporters saying that they were, quote unquote, embellished. The state of Oklahoma is trying to act as if nothing happened because the stakes are high for the death penalty. 
The Eighth Amendment specifies that there cannot be cruel or unusual punishment. Since the death penalty has been reinstated in the late 70s, lethal injection has been the major way of killing people on death row because it has been widely considered to be painless and not cruel or unusual. Now, whether or not that makes sense, given that people are being killed is one thing, but either way, the death penalty has been considered ironclad from a constitutional perspective since then for that reason. The drug cocktail used by Oklahoma uses the drug midazolam at the center of several years of controversy around whether or not lethal injections are cruel and unusual, since it's one of the few drugs that can still be used to kill due to most pharmaceutical companies withdrawing authorization for their drugs to be used for executions. Midazolam-based executions have been described by many as the, quote, chemical equivalent of burning at the stake. Oklahoma was one of the first places where this issue surfaced back in 2014. The execution of Clayton Lockett, which the warden called a bloody mess, took 43 minutes, and many people figured then something might be wrong with the midazolam-based cocktails. And then a few months later, Charles Warner was executed by Oklahoma and actually screamed out that his body was, quote-unquote, on fire, which certainly skyrocketed midazolam into the media sphere as being linked to seriously painful executions. So 34 Oklahoma death row inmates filed a federal lawsuit seeking to have the state's death sentences voided for unconstitutionality because they violated the Eighth Amendment, including Grant, by the way. The state at that time had said, well, we're just going to stop killing people until the issue is resolved because many advocates in favor of the death penalty are concerned that pushing ahead with executions with these drug cocktails or other methods like the gas chamber and so on risk the death penalty being declared unconstitutional as the deaths will be so clearly painful and brutal. So Grant, through a a ridiculous ruling by a judge and then a ridiculous ruling by a judge to overturn another stay. So it was like three rulings in the course of about a week. They went ahead and killed him. There are six other people who are slated to be killed. Then there are the 26 people who are part of this lawsuit who don't have death sentences yet. So nevertheless, the execution of Grant last week goes to show the inmates who filed the lawsuit definitely have a point here as it concerns the particular method used by Oklahoma. And it also comes as more evidence has been presented from various studies that basically all lethal injections create a quote unquote drowning feeling as you die rather than being painless. It's a shame that Grant had to die and die this way, but it does show that the substance of the lawsuit is correct. The death penalty is cruel and unusual. We already know it's racist, biased against the poor, and that it does nothing to deter quote unquote crime. It is even more expensive than life imprisonment. So end of the day, it's just more evidence that the death penalty needs to be ended. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.